You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Michael, thanks for coming on to The Big Trade series. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and let everyone know what you're up to these days? All right. My name is Michael Oliver. I have a sole proprietorship momentum structural analysis. I've provided uh, proprietary technical research uh, since 1992, primarily to asset management institutions, hedge funds, banks, mutual funds, and so forth. Uh, My focus is pretty broad in my reports, uh, which I've I've now included retail clients can subscribe uh, and go to the site uh, www.olivermsa.com. Dot com, But my reports cover all four of the major exchange-traded categories. Uh, that would be equity, arena, uh, commodities, interest rates or debt markets, and uh, uh, forex markets. I do focus a bit more probably on the equities and the commodities because there's more interest there. But uh, I try to cross-correlate things. In other words, I don't just look at uh, the S&P 500 in and of itself. It doesn't exist in and of itself anyway. And I look at the relationship between markets. I do a lot of spread work. Spread work is simply the relative performance of one asset category to another and so forth. And a lot of information can be gleaned from that. All my work is technical. I tend to block out, blank out, block out uh, fundamental input. I do have my own solid fundamental views, but I don't let them get in the way. Uh, timing to me is more important than broad generalities. Uh, my methodology to describe it in a couple sentences is uh, momentum structural analysis through emphasis is on structure. A lot of people use the phrase momentum, you know, what a momentum player is, is a person who chases a trend. Well, I don't do that. I seek to anticipate trend change before it happens. I look for the evidence in the momentum action of a market. And by momentum action, I simply mean uh, we've all heard the phrase, I think Bob Farrell invented it, the technician at Merrill Lynch decades ago, who said uh, one of his prime rules was all markets, markets will always return to their mean. Well, you know, a mean is an average and, you know, there's short-term averages and there's long-term ones, so we're more concerned with the long-term stuff. For example, a three-year moving average or 36-month, and, and if you go back 100 years in the S&P 500 and the Dow Industrials, you will in fact see that the market is more or less continually weaving above and below its mean. Sometimes it'll just return to it. Sometimes it will oscillate well below it. Uh, I think we're at one of those points right now, an inflection point, where we're about to go back down to it at minimum, which means the 1600s on the S&P. But I plot, instead of plotting price, like most technicians, I plot price in relation to an oscillator, various means, long-term, intermediate, and short-term. So I'm continually looking not just at trends, but various trends, because any market, any market at any one time is engaged in a short-term trend, an intermediate trend, and a long-term trend, and they can be contradictory. And it's, it's very important to, to know the difference, to know how they interface. So anyway, uh, as brief, brief as I can be, I think that sort of expresses what I do. Momentum structural analysis, I'm looking for structural breakage, trend change, evidence, much like a price chart technician looks for in a price chart, I look for it in momentum. So, Michael, if we were to take a look at the history, say, for example, the Dow Jones or S&P over the last hundred years, like you indicated earlier, let's just take that whole sample of like the hundred years. If you're taking the mean number of that or a median, for example, 
and you're talking about mean reversion, intuitively I understand that equity markets are continuously making higher highs, right? We're, we're basically at all-time highs at this juncture. How do you define the, the time period? Because if you go too further back, then it means that um, you would have right now, we'd be several standard deviations, I imagine, from from the mean based on it being at all time highs versus say you know fifty years ago or something like that. Well, no, not actually, not the way I do it. Uh, I also, let's for example, I've put a lot of emphasis in, in uh, since October through January. Plotting the S&P 500 in relation to its 36 month average and its three year average are slightly different. They, they're uh, when you plot them, they can. Uh, Reveal different information. What, those what are, is that's the like statistical a, significance of the thirty-six well, months? It's, it's, How do you come up with that figure? It's not really. I, I argue that there is no magic average. There is none. Uh, it's all somewhat arbitrary. But you can at least define them in terms of one being long term, one intermediate term. For example, if you use a three year, a three quarter, a three month, a three week, you you lessen the magnifying glass that you're oscillating against. So if you're concerned about what's the S&P going to do for the next uh, three to five weeks, what you should be plotting is not uh, the S&P versus its three-year average. That's a too grand of a view. You should be plotting it versus its three-week average. And so it ebbs and flows on, like, a, like a yo-yo on either side of that average over time. And, and you want to know when it's turning down to go for that average and possibly go through it. Uh, so what if and I'm if using you, like a four-year average? And, and I could argue that that's... that's- you know, like that's, a presidential cycle or something like that. Right. That's no less valid than a three-year. It's somewhat arbitrary. I'll grant you that. In fact, I used a 200-week average, which is almost a – that's a four-year average almost. Uh, you know, it's a very popular, the 200-day average. And I, I can oscillate against that as well. You plot the daily price and its relationship to the 200-day average. How much above is it or how much below is it? And it shows up as a plus or negative on an oscillator. Sorry, did you and, say 200-week or 200-day? Well, no, I, I, you can use either. Uh, okay. The, the, uses the 200-day, and, and uh, frankly, my son, who's uh, advanced some of my research, said one out of 200 weeks. So he went back and showed me about uh, 90 years of stock history using the Dow weeklies and then the S&P weeklies, plotted versus a 200-week oscillator, which is uh, about the long – I use a 10-year as well. But you, you can go out too far, but it, the, the main point being that the number itself, whether it's a three-year or four-year or one-year or whatever, that's not really – there is no holy average. It's not right. crossing average that, that matters. It's the, the structures that are built when you plot the oscillator. You will see – perhaps I'll argue this point. You'll see more perfection, more structural integrity to the visible eye if you plot a momentum chart than you will if you plot a price chart. And you could have a situation where the price, mar- the price chart of, of, let's say, the S&P right now is continuing to ascend with loops and, and bumps and ups and downs and so forth, but a gradual ascent, actually, of the last six months. Uh, when you plot momentum uh, against, for example, a 36-month average, it's flat as a pancake. The lows keep coming back to the exact same level, 340-some-odd points above the 36-month average, which is uncanny. It's ever since uh, January, every low every month is between 340 and 350 points over the 36-month average on the oscillator. So if you looked at the daily price of the S&P, you see this ascending irregular pattern, really. You look at this oscillator and you see a perfect flat floor. Now, Michael, let me ask you. If I was to – 
Say, for example, I am following a particular market ETF or equity, and uh-huh. I use this kind of like school of thought in terms of thinking, right? What happens when, for example, the the price of the particular equity or ETF is going in a different direction from what you know the analysis is indicating, and then what ha- I, This is what happens to me psychologically in a situation like this. I would then start to then maybe adjust the analysis. So rather than the 200-day mm-hmm. or 200-week, maybe because the price isn't working the way or confirming the direction after I took the position and I've become extra sensitive about holding right. that position, I'm then going to adjust it to like 100-day or 100-week average. It's, could, could that yeah. – be possible? Doesn't that happen? And and doesn't that put me in, in a less advantageous position because I've taken the position based on one form of analysis and kind of uh-huh. curfitted it to, you know, Correct. Correct. Yeah. give me some no. additional psychological support? Straightforward couple answers there. One, sure. always look at different timescales of trend. So, for instance, uh, in October last year, the S&P dropped from uh, at about 1960 and price early October, uh, I put out a report and said, we're going to get hit hard. We dropped 1820 in about five days. Why? Because the 36-month oscillator broke a major structure. Right. The three-year oscillator did not. It held precisely at the October low. So you have to look. It's not – there's no – not only is there not one holy H-O-L-Y, moving average, there's right. also not one holy trend. You should always be looking at the intermediate to balance if you have a long-term view, because sometimes intermediate trends can hurt a lot. You may have a long-term bearish view on a market or bullish and be suffer greatly in an intermediate counter-trend move. So you must always be aware of that and always be measuring the different timescales to fit them together. And sometimes they do fit together, and that's so when you get your best what is a good definition of long-term, a medium-term, and short-term? Uh, short-term is something uh, last measured in a handful of weeks. Intermediate is something you measure in a handful of months. Quarterly okay. is uh, in between. It's a handful of quarters. And annual generally will dispense its trends within three to five years. So each of them tends to behave in a fairly regular clock-like manner, not cyclical in a perfect way. But uh, the durations are, you know, call it several years, several quarters, several months, several weeks. And those time frames, if you're concerned about the small stuff, then you should incorporate that into your view. But again, you mentioned one thing that I, I want to straighten out that as far as momentum. You said when the price does something that momentum isn't doing. Well, that's what most momentum tools that you'll find on your computer screen free of charge with the software program uh, that will give you overbought, oversold readings or will non-confirm the price action. I view non-confirmation, which is the most popular use of momentum out there, as a wet noodle aspect or attribute of momentum technical analysis. There are many times when a market may be pushing into a new high and its momentum indicators are not agreeing. Mm -hmm. You don't go short because there's a non-confirmation. You become aware that there's probably something about to happen, but the non-confirmation could persist for a while. That is not a good use of momentum. That's why I emphasize the word structure. If I see a non-confirmation, I make note of it. But and it's probably a leading indicator, but it could be three weeks leading, three months leading, you know, and it can be painful. What I look for is this, literally a snapping point where structure, a floor, a ceiling, a five-point uptrend line, for example, on a momentum chart gets broken. It's at those points of breakage 
regardless of the non-confirmation issue, that you get your whoosh factor, where the market suddenly moves from level A to level B very rapidly. Almost all moves in markets that are the sudden downdraft or updraft variety come from momentum breakage and possibly some price breakage, but usually momentum will lead it. And that's why I focus on momentum and the structure of momentum. So, Michael, would you say that other individuals can replicate your approach or because it's so ad hoc or bespoke to each individual that the analysis and the conclusions that you generate might be different from, say, that of your son or someone else that's actually still using this whole, I guess, this whole school of thought, which is momentum structural analysis. Probably anybody could interpret anything the way they want, but I'm very disciplined in the way that I interpret what structure is. It has to be abundantly clear to the point where a 12-year-old child with a crayon can see the structure just looking at the chart. The the subjectivity factor, uh, if, if there's subjectivity in the momentum study, I pass it on and go to another market. Uh, you don't have to play a hand of poker if you've got a bad hand. And if, if you do an analysis of any given market and you sort of come away scratching your head or sort of fudging your opinion like, well, it sort of looks like – don't do it. Right. Go somewhere else. Uh, it's the same would apply to a fundamental analyst. There's no reason taking a position if you don't have a conviction. Right. Uh, and so a lot of times momentum will be unclear, just as price will be unclear. But when it becomes, don't you think I could – sorry, because these are very important points and I think the audience will appreciate it too. Don't you think that even if, if – you, say you went with like a daily, uh, a weekly, and a monthly, do you mm-hmm. think that I could – go with like, I don't know, a, a bi-weekly, um, a, a quarterly, and an annual and find a complete, like from my perspective, I could see a complete downtrend when you're seeing a complete uptrend because yes. we're using different time frames, different but time it's kind frames. of like long-term, short-term, mm-hmm. and, and immediate term, but just different like periods, basically. Correct. It, it's it's the magnifying glass. How big is it? How, what's, your, what's your field of view? If you're only concerned about the next three weeks, uh, the annual momentum structure or the trend of annual is almost irrelevant uh, if you're a trader, you're a short-term trader. Right. But if, if you, most of the big moves will come from the big trends, and they'll come from breakage in the big trends. Uh, a slot machine comes to mind. I've never played one, but you, know, you pull the handle and three oranges pop up. You're a winner, whatever. They have to be the same fruit. Well, if the long-term trend matches the intermediate and matches the short-term, oh, boy, you've probably got something. So are um, you taking stop losses as well when you're trying to build these no, positions? Or this is strictly no. advisory and you're, we're not talking about you doing your own uh, trading, for example? It, it's, it's strictly advisory and I don't believe in stop losses as an arbitrary. I believe okay. in stop losses if there's a structural reason. For example, let's assume uh, you've got a, a long-term sell indication, a major structural breakage. Okay. And you, you enter at that point, short the S&P, let's say. And then that indicator is so broad that it's not going to provide you. Let's say it's an annual oscillator. It might be 200-point move before it says something's amiss. So you can't focus on that. That's your, it's your green light to go in. Then you turn down to your lesser timescales, monthly or weekly momentum, and you, you control the ebbs and flows using that. And if it doesn't have a structural component, you don't put a stop order in to protect your position until and unless there's a structural reason to go the other way or to exit your existing position. Right. Uh, you don't just throw, oh, I'm going to risk 5%. Well, that kind of arbitrary determination of a stop is effectively coin flipping. It, it's not discipline. It, it's, it indicates a, a lack of a, 
of a methodology to time where to get out. Right. Uh, you, sh- you should get out when the market says, I'm going to go up if you're short, or where it says, I'm going to go down if you're long. Uh, and that would probably be a lesser time scale than your primary indicator. Uh, and so, yes, you can ebb up, guide a trade with lesser indicators. Okay, uh, you- Michael, this is fantastic. I'll okay. share for you a little bit about how I, some of these experience, if you notice some of these questions that I'm asking you are actually based out of strict experience. And, you know, if I had to actually deal with a lot of these things, um, after that, what we'll do is we'll maybe talk about some of the trends that you're identifying as well. Okay. Um, cause I know you've sent me a lot of your newsletters and I'd like to cover that as well, but I think this is such an important, the name of the show is actually called the big trade series. And you're one of the few people I'm actually talking to trading about. So this is fantastic. Having experienced a lot of this myself, um, I, I recently published a book called the big trade, basically covering, um, market analysis from a quantitative approach. Cause as you, we've kind of, um, agreed upon is that fundamentals, despite using numbers, can also be very ambiguous, right? It's an interpretation. Either you're going to be bullish or bearish based on all mm-hmm. of this, almost like a form of inductive um, analysis, right? You're inducting all sorts of different facts and figures to be able to determine, um, you know, your stance on a particular, you know, stock or ETF. And I've also experienced this more so with traditional technical analysis, in which you're also doing a lot of induction and sometimes curve fitting and actually relying a lot on, um, you know, ambiguous forms of information. And, and the reality is just like you indicated is that the word technical analysis, I believe is truly deceptive because it sounds like it's very expert and very truly technical and scientific. Yet, as you know, when you're looking at some of the, the data points that are being used to construct these free technical indicators, they actually can be almost uh, very dangerous because most of them actually lag price to some extent. And as you, we've discussed about is that price sometimes is indicating something else. And if you're not really familiar with the actual mathematics behind moving averages, MACD, stochastics, you name it, basically, then you're in trouble. And then there's the whole group of people that are using patterns like, you know, wedges, cup and handles, all sorts of those patterns, which can also be extremely ambiguous. And what I've started to do and what I cover in the book is actually the form of a quantitative analysis, right? We've actually do not use indicators. Rarely do we use charts. We actually look at uh, you know, stats and figures very similar to what you would see behind like a baseball card or or someone that's doing like Google Analytics or someone that has a retail store that's quantifying shopping behavior and, and understanding probabilities of movements. We don't actually ever declare that markets are predictable. They're probabilistic. Things can happen. And as long as you try to position yourself in that manner, you can capture a component of that trend. Um, one of the big things that we see are people can be very dogmatic, right? Fundamentally, especially about their views on certain things. Um, As you know, we both know Doug Casey and there's a lot of individuals that emphasize a lot of commodity investing or buying gold based on these structural fundamental situations. But sometimes if price is not confirming it, then you're probably better to follow what price is saying and then waiting for the fundamentals to concur with a particular view if it does take shape. So so this is fantastic, the fact that you're sharing some of the experiences that you have and providing your own perspective to 
adding on top of traditional technical analysis. So, so that's why I really enjoyed uh, th- this so far, this segment of that conversation. Maybe we can take it by dis- also discussing about some of the trends that you're seeing. And you sent me this newsletter about one of your great calls in China. And China is a great example of price moving before valuation. Uh, equities have effectively doubled within the last year. What were you able to see and what are your thoughts on China right now? If, if you didn't catch the move already, don't try to catch it. Uh, right. <laughs> it it's, it's, it's more than doubled in actually nine months. July yeah. it broke out. Uh, I became obsessed with Shanghai. Not Hong Kong now. We're talking Shanghai mainly. Mm. Uh, they're, they're, to some extent, they're different beasts. Yes. Uh, Shanghai did not behave like the developed markets. In 2008 and nine, it made a, a bear market low like all the developed markets. It exploded far more off that low in the first year than did the S&P or the developed markets. Mm. But then something happened. And, you know, there's fundamental explanations for it. And I think primarily it's that the government did not overtly act to keep stock prices up. Mm. So stock prices in a staircase, relentless manner, went down from 2010 through last year, middle, middle of 2014, effectively almost going back to the bear market lows. Uh, fundamental analysts, of course, were and, – and, uh, Momentum players uh, were poo-pooing Shanghai because it was behaving so badly. Why should you, you know, everything else is acting great. It behaves badly. And there are all kinds of bad stories about malinvestment in China, which I'm sure are all true. I had to ignore that. Yeah. Because technically speaking, one, the market was not inflated. It was deflated again, naturally. It went back to its lows on its own. That's step one. So it's just sheer pricing level. It, was, it, it cut itself in half again. Uh, two, it was prolonged decline. Time is always a factor in allowing uh, markets to find balance points. You don't find a balance point in a six-week collapse or a six-week explosion. It, sometimes it takes several years. Uh, but its momentum factors were clearly developing. If you looked at the price of Shanghai during the last several years of decline, it was just a relentless staircase down. I mean, there's mm-hmm. nothing positive about it. But momentum wasn't. Momentum was building a massive floor with a very clearly defined level above each rally high that did not look anything like the price chart. And when I say momentum, I mean 200-week, 36-month, those type of long-term timescales. I was obsessed with Shanghai for probably three-quarters of a year, putting out reports on it maybe once a month, every couple of months, just simply noting what number does it take for the Shanghai in price to cause its momentum to break through the momentum base. And it would go up and tease the number and fall back and never break out. Finally, in July last year, when it cleared 2100, coming up underneath that, getting through 2100, all the momentum indicators blew out to the upside. The size and scope of the base was so huge. It was three years at minimum of width of the momentum base, which is sizable. When you have a big box like that or a big range and you break through it, it's far more powerful than if you had a range that was three months wide. Mm-hmm. And so, and because of the indicators I was measuring it against, the, the annual type scale, uh, it was not only a long-term indicator, but the, the base itself, the width of it was, was substantial. You don't find these very often. So did I know Shanghai would double? No. Go up 50%? Sure. That was pretty much easy to, to tell. Uh, but it, in fact, more than doubled in, in less than in three quarters of a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it came from a very discernible momentum base that a blind person could have seen six months before the breakout. Mm-hmm. And all you had to do was just keep monitoring and monitoring for the magic point. Momentum finally poked its head up through the top of the base. Meanwhile, the price chartists, they didn't have any such clarity. 
There was no such obvious point on a price chart that said, my golly, we've got something monstrous here. Similar thing happened last year with oil, the opposite direction in the month of August. When oil came down through uh, uh, West Texas Intermediate through $96, which was still a reasonably high level. It had been in the 80s in the prior months and over 100 and so oscillating, you know, in $30 range or so. But it came through $96 in the month of August last year. It broke a four, about a four-year-wide support level on its 200-week oscillator and its three-year average oscillator, both huge timescales. And also a very huge floor was being broken. So to see a collapse after breaking that kind of floor is not shocking. Again, if the, if the scope of the technicals were only three months wide or three-quarters wide, it wouldn't imply the kind of potency that we got. But it was annual momentum breaking. So that's one thing I try to look for is, is it's not just whether something's changing trend, but on what time scale. And is the structure that it's breaking through awesome? What are you seeing with the euro? Uh, the euro collapse came last year uh, in, I think it was early summer. I, I think I'd pegged it at around 136. And I, I frankly thought it would go to about 103, 104. Oh, that's a price-based reason for the 103, 104, and they bounced off that. Yeah. Uh, as far as the euro right now, I would yawn at the rally. I think the rally could sustain – I put out a report yesterday on it uh, two, uh, several days ago. It was coming up to 110, and I thought you could go to 113 to 115. And I thought you might even hang in there until next quarter, meaning that this rally, though it may not go a lot further, I also have reasons to believe it might also hang in there uh, and, and be ringing in this 114, 113, 115 level uh, as we get into the next quarter, which is some 40-some-odd trading days away. There's certain reasons for that. But no, this is not a – this upturn in the euro is an a intermediate-type thing, nothing uh, of great significance. I'm more keen on the yen right now. Uh, the yen has a particularly good-looking potential. It's not behaving like the euro, but uh, it, it has a potential structure that if you could get the yen, which I'm looking at yen futures uh, right. there in the 83-84 area, uh, it's yen per dollar, uh, as opposed to the way the cash market's quoted. But the yen futures, if they get much up into the high 84s and particularly above 86, I could see the yen run up into the mid-90s. Uh, and that would be a very upsetting event. It would want to be a nice event for the, if you're long the yen. Although it's really only talking 10, 15 percent move, um, percent-wise, it doesn't compare to Shanghai. But it would be very disruptive to other markets, and that's one reason I'm keen on it, is if the yen ever did that, uh, it would be like a, a kid acting unruly in class. You know, you're not supposed to be doing that. It upsets a lot of central bank policies, and it upsets a lot of investment plans that are built upon the yen remaining subdued. Uh, so therefore, I'm, I'm keen on the yen right now in the Forex markets. Are there any other trends that you're currently looking at that also seem interesting? Yes. Gold and silver. The near-term and intermediate-term action of gold is waffling. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it goes from up to down, and it teases you. And I think a lot of people look at the, the, the $20 and $30 swings. I've identified some levels on gold that if it can get through, uh, and these apply this quarter, uh, specifically 1254, uh, $12.55 excuse me, on a monthly closing basis. Well, that's about – Four and a half percent or so above the market right now, three and a half percent above recent highs. If you ever get up to twelve fifty five, which on a price chart, if you look at it, doesn't really mean too much. But on momentum, quarterly momentum in particular, it is a massive monthly closing breakout. And uh, silver has a comparable situation up in the low seventeen dollar area. We're right now below sixteen. So there's nothing to get excited about here except to know where the numbers are, because if we get there, uh, they look like bottle rockets. Now, if they don't get there, then you don't do anything. 
so that's that's one of the warnings of momentum. You know, it, it you can see the structure. It's like a horse at the racetrack. You can see the starting gate, <laughs> and until that gate opens, nothing started. You, but you you can define the gate ahead of time, and then move on, and then just keep monitoring for effect. Another market I'm like um, I have a general view that commodities in general are in a bottoming process. Uh, some of them are laggards, like oil. But a lot of commodities got beat up very badly several years ago and basically have based since then. Sugar is a good example. Sugar has a, uh, a massive momentum base on it. It's trading around 13 cents a pound right now. If you ever get up to about 14 and 15, I wouldn't be shocked to take it to 20 in a heartbeat. Uh, it has one of these big structural bases on it. And it sort of fits with the more macro view that I've got that developed market equity indexes are topping simultaneous with commodities worldwide tending to bottom. We've been through this before, called 1976 and 1977. The exact opposite handoff occurred and, of course, led to the great commodity boom of the late 70s. Michael, you've also um, written a book previously, right? And why don't you discuss a little bit about that and the premise of that book? Well, that book is a political philosophy book. Yeah. How, <laughs> did, how a, did you go from uh, technical analysis to political uh, philosophy? Well, I was going to be a political philosophy professor back when I was a kid, back in the, okay. in the mid, late 60s, early 70s. And uh, I wrote a master's thesis. Uh, I, I knew Murray Rothbard, uh, who was a disciple of uh, Ludwig von Mises. Right. And we're not for Murray Rothbard and now the Mises Institute. Uh, th- that school of thought could have dwindled and been a, you know, on a back shelf somewhere, but he, he perpetuated it and made it, made it quite large right. uh, and very influential now. And in fact, I, I would dare say that it is the most – uh, the greatest opponent to Keynesianism that exists out there is, is the other voice, uh, which was not true 30 years ago. It was relatively unknown. And I was a student of Ayn Rand, of objectivism. Now, those two, on the surface, don't seem to marry up because Ayn Rand was very much a limited government advocate and was ardent on that. And she thought libertarians, quote, unquote, were hippies, uh, perhaps because some of them dressed that way. I'm not sure. But she had a very personal dislike for them, and uh, Rothbard used to be part of her, her inner circle at one time, along with Alan Greenspan, who was part of the inner circle of Ayn Rand. Yes. Uh, and Rothbard was kicked out by Rand, I think on uh, some religious reasons. Uh, Rothbard was married to a, a, a Catholic woman, and Rand, of course, was a non-believer. Anyway, they split apart, so there was both the idea difference between the libertarians of Rothbard, the anarcho-capitalist, and Ayn Rand being a limited government advocate. What I advocate in the book, which I actually wrote in the early 70s and only got around to publishing a few years ago, was the marriage of her basic philosophical principles on up to politics, but stopping it there and replacing her politics with anarcho-capitalist libertarian politics of Rothbard. And the fit to me is perfect. Is a complete philosophical system starting from basic philosophical principles all the way up to politics uh, and economics. Uh, she was, I think, made an error in her politics, philosophical error. I think she was in love with the United States because she'd come from the Soviet Union. Right. And obviously the contrast must have been great to her. Dramatic, and, yeah. yeah and, and she just embraced basically the, the founding fathers as, as the, the be-all and end-all of political philosophy, limited statism. And I argue in the book that they can't have a limited state. Uh, you can pretend to. You could create constructs like uh, checks and balances and all that sort of thing. But ultimately, uh, they're just temporary road bumps toward a more total state. And I think to some extent we've proven that over the last 30, 40 years. But uh, that's what the book's about in uh, very little reference to contemporary events because uh, uh, it was written back then and I didn't add con- 
contemporary events to it. The only thing in it that pertained to economics was the distortions caused by central banks, which, of course, is part of the state, mm-hmm. in terms of the man's ability to measure, to make investment decisions. Uh, the distortion is caused by the central banks pricing money, the interest rate, where it shouldn't be or where it otherwise would not be, creating a lot of money. In other words, increasing the supply of the water in the swimming pool and so forth. So those are cause distortions, and ultimately those distortions come back to bite you, as real estate proved uh, in the last cycle. Anyway, and we've got our own version coming again, and I, I'm confident of that. The own, uh, you mean another equities? Uh, and I think this time around, it's not a real estate problem. It is not a, a bank problem. It is a central bank problem. Right. They've created a, a religious structure, a belief structure that people now bow down to and believe in. And uh, once the disbelief, a wave of disbelief comes across investors worldwide, developed markets in particular, when faith is lost, <laughs> panic can set in. And with the elevated equity prices now, even in Germany, you know, the, the DAX has joined the party. Mm-hmm. The S&P clearly and uh, the Nikkei all goosed quite high on the page uh, and certainly without great underpinnings of economic reasons, but very clear monetary reasons. Uh, Once that party ends, it could be nasty because that clearly was a distortion. And similarly, there's other distortions underway too and no doubt the government debt markets. We're already seeing like the German bunds uh, get shellacked pretty good in the last few weeks with a good technical reason. So well, anyway, I'm guessing it's, when you're looking at your trading, you clearly have to separate that from your yes, right? Okay, good. I don't even have oh, to absolutely. finish that sentence. No. <laughs> you, yeah. you knew what I was going to ask. Oh, so, uh, for instance, the gold at 1900 in late 2000 and 2011. Uh, in early 2012, I had to turn major negative on gold. Mm-hmm. It didn't really break down until 2013, but mm-hmm. annual momentum broke down clearly. Again, it's a kind of chart that I've showed you a gold chart then. You saw a market that was basically hovering. It might be a consolidation for another leg up, right? You know, when a market goes up and then, and then waffles sideways, it could be just a, a rest point. Right. But annual momentum was breaking massive floors. And so, uh, you know, by the spring of 2013, the floor came out in price. Okay. And we went from, you know, 19, 18, 17, 16, 15, we went to suddenly in the 1100s. So I have to pay attention to that as much as of a goal lover as I am on, in the very long term. Right. Uh, so that, Even that's gold. the hard assets that you're owning, and then the trading is trading, and advisory is advisory, basically. That's, I think Correct. you have to separate it into different worlds, right? Because if, if a lot of the, this school of thought would basically propose some kind of severe collapse in the financial system, and that would mean even the ability to trade, I'd imagine, in the future, right? When, when things got really bad, then they just basically banned shorting, right? And so, so you have to... I guess, divide up your investments into different um, classes or classifications. Well, that's, that's an astute thought, the, the banning of trading. But uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know whether they could do that now, given that markets are, are across the world and they're not just in New York and, you know, and so forth. So, but, uh, yeah, I think um, – It could the, be the very live- systemic, Michael, right? It could be oh, across absolutely. the board and you never know. It's, if, I, if I think you're, it If you're willing to believe what, what you're discussing, then that could um, – mm-hmm be a, the crisis of all crises until the next one I, comes, right? Yes, I, I think it's the crisis of central banks this time. They can't blame it on Lehman Brothers this time. Right. Uh, they, really, they really couldn't blame it on them then, but uh, we, we overlooked that for now. They, they won that argument, at least in the press, in the public opinion mind. But uh, in truth, those, those failures were effectively government wave effect 
distortions that cause the banks to make uh, malinvestments, particularly in real estate uh, backed securities. Uh, that didn't come from their own rampant speculation. It came from government encouraging it uh, and then blaming them for, for it after the fact. But this time, the, the central banks have now beat their chest and said, look at us. Look at all the good we've done. So in effect, they've, they've put the, the, uh, the boiling pot right in their own lap. They can't blame it on anybody else anymore. And so this is going to be fun. Uh, and all I'm looking for as a technician is uh, evidence that some movement in that uh, resolution direction is occurring. And I'm starting to see the evidence. Well, Michael, thank you very much for coming on to the Big Trade Series. Let's have you come on next time when you start to see more evidence on some of these issues and factors. Well, thank you, Peter. You're a very astute analyst. <laughs> thank you. Good questions. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 